Welcome to the Provcast. This is the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. My name is Drew Griffin. I'm the managing editor here at Providence. And with me today, we have a return guest, someone we had last fall, a friend of Providence, Faisal Atani, who is the resident senior fellow at the Rafi Kiriri Center for Middle Eastern Studies at um, the Atlantic Council. And uh, Faisal, welcome back. Thank you, Drew. Uh, we always enjoy having you on. You know, Providence exists to kind of equip the American mind to engage the real world. And so as we look out into that real world and we look out into what's uh, occurring in the international environment right now, we, our eyes kind of almost immediately go to the, the Middle East, as, as it often does. And looking at uh, Syria, which is a topic that we discussed last fall, there have been a number of developments uh, that have occurred since we last spoke, and the, the most you know notable of which is President Trump decision in December, his announcement to withdraw 2,000 American troops from Syria, uh, which brought uh, bringing an end to the uh, uh, the campaign there that we have waged assisting uh, the Assad regime in their fight against uh, ISIS and the ISIS militants there. Uh, that decision was met with a lot of shock right across the world, uh, uh, throughout uh, the Middle East, and, and even back here at home, uh, really catching the president's, uh, both the supporters and uh, his opponents by surprise. Surprise, and that surprise and that shock was kind of exacerbated uh, just this last month. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was in Israel uh, when John Bolton was there on January sixth. And John Bolton goes on a little tour of the Middle East, starting in Israel, and and announces there the kind of a rollback of Trump's decision, uh, saying that yes, you know, we may withdraw from Syria, but there are going to be conditions for that pullout uh, that could leave American forces there for months or even years, uh, which seemed to kind of put a damper on the president's kind of we're going to do this right now. We've declared victory. ISIS has been defeated. So what I, what we love about having you on. And one of the, the great benefits of just kind of tapping into your wisdom and experience and, and the purview that you have of, of your expertise there in the Middle East is to help our listeners kind of make sense of what is, is occurring there. Um, and looking at this timeline, which seems to be rather disjointed in terms of American foreign policy, seems to be rather unclear in terms of like where exactly are we right now uh, in terms of U.S. policy vis-a-vis Syria. Uh, so help us make a little bit of sense to the best of your ability as to what what the United States, where we're at right now, what the United States is actually doing. And then we'll look a little bit about, you know, um, what the effects are, how those effects are being felt across the Middle East by our um, uh, allies and our opponents alike. Thank you, Drew. Uh, I'll start by saying I think there is a constant here that's been at play over the past couple of years. And that's been basically the president's instincts on the problem of Syria including the problem of ISIS as well. And in fact, much of the Middle East, especially where there are chaotic or difficult problems, Donald Trump has tended to process it in a manner that says that the U.S. has certain core interests. As soon as those core interests are met, as much as possible, the secondary interests or other concerns should be delegated to our regional partners and associates. Uh, in and around Syria. So for him, I believe his instincts were always going to lead him to a place where he said, that's it, I want out of Syria. The reason he didn't say it earlier is, A, we were not as advanced in the anti-ISIS military effort, and B, there are factions within the administration or members of the administration who don't share that instinct and who wanted to do more ambitious things in Syria. 
Uh, and the, those ambitious things required us to keep troops there. Uh, among these goals would be what is described as the enduring defeat of ISIS, the expulsion or exit of Iranian-backed militias, and a real political process of reform in Damascus. Now, this sort of existed, this, this policy package existed within the Trump administration. And could, I assume that Trump at least verbally allowed it and signed off on it. Otherwise, it would not have happened at all. And this is among, uh, this is specifically in the State Department. Uh, in uh, Ambassador James Jeffries' uh, team, he's the special envoy to uh, for transition to Syria. Now, the issue was, and the, the risk has always been that something would happen in Syria far along in the anti-ISIS process, such that a crisis would emerge and the president would have to make a decision. Uh, and the president would make that decision based on how far he, how far ISIS has been degraded, whether or not enough of the job has been done, and whether America, literally whether America can get away with getting out. Uh, and that appears in this case to have been something as small and simple as a conversation with Turkish President Recep Erdogan. I don't know what the content of the conversation was, but I assume there was the point of contention was our alliance with the Kurdish militias on the ground that are helping us fight ISIS. And I assume that by this time, the timeline mentally for Donald Trump had come to the point where we have to make a decision. Is it time to leave yet? Or should we stay indefinitely, which is where the policy seemed to be going, hence the confusion. Uh, and uh, and he made his decision. Now, is it a surprise? Uh, I get, Of course. I mean, if the president wakes up and decides that we got to get out of this place now, it's always a surprise. Uh, it's not shocking, though. And it does reflect things that have been going on before and what we understand about, about President Trump. Now, where we are now, you asked me, where does that leave us in terms of our next policy steps? What seems to have happened is President Trump took this decision, uh, and uh, I mean, predictably, as usually happens in these situations, there are interest groups and bureaucracies that have a problem with the decision because it threatens something they believe in, plans that they made, assets, whatever. Uh, and pretty much all the important interest groups in the U.S. government disagreed with President Trump's decision, or specifically, at the very least, disagreed that ISIS, that the ISIS situation had improved enough for us to be able to responsibly disengage. Then there are other interests within these interests. Some people, particularly on the military side, didn't want to disengage and completely cut the, Kurd, the Kurdish militias off in Syria, because in theory that would leave them at the mercy of Turkey or the regime or any number of hostile actors. Others in the Pentagon just felt militarily the ISIS situation was not resolved yet. And then you had that team of people I referred to earlier, the people who wanted those three ambitious goals to arise out of an indefinite U.S. military deployment. So, you know, like any kind of contentious decision, the president makes the decision and everybody else is thrown in, you know, their opinions and tried to slow it down. Uh, and I think this is what's happened. Uh, you know, president, in theory, can do whatever he wants, I guess. But, you know, in practice, 
things are a bit more complicated than that. Well, that's so. just it. In theory, he can do whatever he wants. But yeah, in practice, when you one of the interest groups uh, kind of um, uh, that's that's represented in this is not just an interest group, but the Defense Secretary James Mattis, right, who are, who resigned really in protest of uh, President Trump's plan to withdraw troops from Syria and and elucidated kind of his points in a letter that was made public, uh, you know, stating that um, he really uh, could not sign on to the president's assessment that um, ISIS has been defeated and that, the, that, you know, Syria should withdraw and that, you know, he deserves, the president deserves, the United States deserves a defense secretary who can align and actually with conviction uh, carry out the president's uh, ideals. And so then you have um, Mattis resigning and protest, which causes a stir. Then you have John Bolton, like I said, just this month, a couple, uh, 10 days ago, uh, from our point of view here, um, going to Israel and, and saying, yes, I know what the president said, but really, you know, we're going to do this in such a way that it's it's not going to be as expeditious as it's going to be deliberate. It could be months, it could be years. So it seems like there, regardless of what the president has kind of decided, whatever pressures or conversations, whether it was Erdogan or whomever, um, uh, led him to this point, uh, there is there's a significant kind of apparatus that's pushing against his impulses to say no the, the situation has not resolved yet and what i what is troubling and what i'm kind of want to chat about a little bit is you know i was when i was in israel over the past couple of weeks, I was having some conversations with people within the government, people within the foreign ministry, and asking them, you know, what are your perceptions? What do you see when you look over here? Uh, what are your feelings about, you know, the Trump administration and the current policy that we're engaging in, in Syria and, and Israel and everywhere? And, um, you know, there's a mix of both positive and negative, as you would expect. The Trump administration has been, uh, in regards to Israel and kind of in regards to the Middle East, been a very positive kind of influence from the point of view of Israelis, moving the U.S. embassy to West Jerusalem and, uh, you know, kind of legitimizing a support for Israel, withdrawing the, the um, UN refugee aid, you know, the $200 million that was going to go to the Palestinian Authority, uh, kind of in protest communicating to the Palestinian Authority to kind of get their house in order before they receive funds. All of these things the Israelis view as, as a very, you know, kind of positive step in comparison, especially to what the Obama administration, uh, how they interacted uh, with Israel. But then they, when it comes to things like Syria, when it comes to these sort of uh, disjointed policy announcements where there's, you know, one step forward, two steps back of, well, yes, you know, we're going to be disruptive and we're going to change our policy and we're going to withdraw from the Middle East. But then you have the entire apparatus, which is what, you know, the, the our allies in Israel look to to see, was well, this actually going to happen? And it doesn't look like it's going to happen. Um, the resulting kind of confusion is really unsettling, right, for our allies. And that the message that I got kind of in, in both in feeling and kind of explicitly uh, communicated to me was like, this is very, for us, uh, us being Israel in the Middle East, very disconcerting, the idea that, one, the United States could withdraw uh, and leave uh, the the kind of Syrian situation to be uh, contended uh, through Iran and, and Russia and even China and Syria and Turkey, all of these players, none of which are, you know, warm towards Israel. If, if anything, they're antagonistic. 
And uh, even if the U.S. doesn't withdraw, this this idea that the president says one thing and his you know uh, his administration and the kind of foreign policy apparatus, the bureaucracy says another. That kind of uh, division is very unsettling. What I mean, what is your read? What is your kind of um, this this lack of unity on the part of policy within the United States on, on the world stage? How that is affecting our allies and really the the global standing of the United States as a dependable force for freedom in the world? So I think some of, uh, I, look, at the very least, uh, look, through the allies' eyes, or through the partners' eyes, things are confusing and unpredictable and unclear. If we are confused about it here in Washington, D.C., and those of us who literally spend nine hours, ten hours a day looking at this and trying to figure this out are confused, I can only imagine how governments outside the country must be, must be processing all this. Having said that, I think there are, uh, uh, first of all, there are governments who benefit from these U.S. decisions and the U.S. Uh, uh, chaos, but there are also some partners that are better placed than others to manage the fallout. Uh, and I think the Israelis, I mean, of course, the Israelis, uh, you know, uh, they would rather have an American military in Syria than not have one. Uh, but... With or without them, the Israelis are taking care of themselves. Uh, as long as a few basic fundamental things in the Israeli-U.S. relationship hold, uh, whether it's uh, technology sharing or money or defense umbrella, all these things are what made Israel a formidable military power. Uh, they, I think they think they can handle themselves. They're worried about the Iranian presence in Syria, very worried about it. Uh, at a strategic level. But my impression is also that they did not believe the U.S. presence there solved that problem for them. Uh, so it was a problem that they have been thinking about and escalating over for literally years now, years. Uh, and I think now they've just come to terms with the, the fact that there's a kind of, as far as they're concerned, this Wild West backdrop in Syria where everything is fair game, you take out the weapons and the people you don't want. If the United States isn't there, fine, as long as they've got our back and they're supporting us diplomatically and economically and militarily. And that's the case. So I think the Israelis have problems, but I also think this is a strong state at the end of the day. With And their rivals are, to a degree, deterred from, from escalating the challenge against them indefinitely. There are other countries uh, allied with us who who have some problems with what we've been doing, uh, especially the Gulf Arab states, who have looked, much like the Israelis, have looked at the new administration to be the kind of anti-Obama administration. Uh, and, of course, President Obama was kind of, if not gold, actually maybe contemptuous as well towards these allies. Their problem is also Iran. And for them, the American security guarantee which still holds, more or less now, is still, is still there, and that's what they're most worried about, particularly on the Arabian Peninsula. When they look at Syria, here's what changed in their calculation. Uh, before, they were treating Syria and the Assad regime as the partner of the Iranians, and there was a perceived U.S. attempt to at least contain and box Assad in and eventually get rid of him one way or the other. With the Americans leaving, they're abandoning that goal, and so therefore the Gulf is also abandoning it. That's why we've been seeing them showing up 
the UAE, for example, has reopened its embassy in uh, in Damascus. There have also been renewed contacts between other Arab governments and the Assad regime. Now they understand that Assad is here to stay. If there's no American military presence there, they have no leverage either. Uh, so they're living with it. I think the people who most, frankly, who get most profoundly affected by all this are the Turks, not uh, not the Arabs and not the Israelis. They have that long border with Syria. They have that long-running conflict with our partners, the Kurds, who are fighting ISIS. They've been fighting them for decades, uh, whether it's in Turkey and now across the border in Syria. And that's a whole other topic that I'm happy to go into Yeah, no, I think it would be – there's some value in that because they're uh, talking about the Kurds because I think that they're – a lot of times uh, from the point of view of U.S. citizens and and kind of policymakers, the the big players get a lot of attention and, you know, get a lot of oxygen and and kind of get a lot of focus. Uh, But you do have uh, groups like the Kurds that are, you know, a minority that have been fighting kind of valiantly and, and partnering with us. Um, against ISIS. And yet now if the United States withdraws and and, and the Kurds do not have us as kind of uh, partners uh, in crime, so to speak, <clears throat> there is this this fear on the part of the Kurds. And I think it's a fear that is is legitimate. Maybe you can speak to that of, of uh, Turkey then taking the U.S. absence and the absence of really any restraint to uh, declare kind of a wholesale you know, like house cleaning uh, in terms of um, uh, the Kurds. So talk a little bit about that, um, you know, the the pending or the impending, the possible, um, uh, some would say and even argue, use the language strong enough of being like almost a humanitarian kind of, uh, you know, uh, catastrophe that could occur um, if if Turkey is allowed to just kind of um, uh, engage against the Kurds at their own discretion. Okay, so the answer to this is a bit complicated. Uh, because uh, up till now, a little bit of context for the answer to make sense is that up till now, when the ISIS problem started and really grew out of control in 2013, 2014, the U.S. made, for one reason or the other, a decision that the best way to fight this fight was to work with local Kurdish forces uh, with a group called the YPG at the time, and make them kind of, uh, or basically the light infantry of the effort against ISIS, the frontline fighters. And we would provide them with intelligence and air support and things of that sort. Now, as it happens, this is an affiliate, and some would argue even almost identical to, although I think that's exaggerating, the PKK, which is a Kurdish militant group based in Turkey that's been fighting the Turkish government for almost 40 years now. So naturally, this is problematic for the U.S.-Turkish relationship. Now, in the process of fighting ISIS, the YPG, the Syrian Kurds, and the United States military conquered about a third of the country. In, and by doing so, triggered a Turkish ground invasion of parts of northern Syria because the Turks wanted to make sure that the Kurds would not take the entire border. Some of that area was Arab and captured by Turkish troops, so Kurds not involved, and some of it was held by the Kurds. And in some cases, there have been atrocities, there's been displacement of civilians, Kurdish civilians, and repopulation by pro-Turkish forces and just Arab civilians displaced from elsewhere. So there have been, so bad stuff has happened. Uh, Now, 
So if you like, the, the YPG's fortunes kind of rose on the backs of the United States. Before this happened, the YPG was a marginal force, and the Syrian regime controlled pretty much everything in the country anyway. And now these guys are among the single most powerful actors in the country. And it's pretty much almost entirely based on the U.S. military presence. So when we leave, however quickly, eventually that means their, their position will literally be inverted. There will be no U.S. presence. There will be a very powerful hostile country to their north. And they will be holding all this territory, some of it Kurdish, some of it Arab. And guess what? The Iranians, the Syrian regime, and the Turks are all going to want some of that. Now, I think the Turkish priority, uh, from a strategic perspective, uh, is not to go into Syria and take all the Kurdish areas and kill all the Kurds. Uh, it's, there's something more subtle, subtle going on. Mostly what they need to do is make sure that the YPG stays away from their border and does not link up with contiguous PKK areas or other Kurdish areas in Turkey. Uh, and that's why we are having these conversations now, and I don't know a lot about the details, no one really does uh, outside the government, about what that, about, about a safe zone. Uh, I think this is a very bad name for it because that isn't really what's going on. Really what it is is a buffer, uh, negotiating a buffer where there are no YPG Kurds and where basically the Turks have... Well, whoever controls it would be friendly to Turkey. I'll put it that way. It doesn't have to be the Turkish military. And that might kind of allay some of these uh, some of these fears. I don't know whether or not that's going to materialize or not. That's one of the reasons, that's one of the things that people in the government told Trump needed to happen before we left. Otherwise, the whole thing would just erupt in another war and ISIS would come back, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so this is where we are right now. Uh, if it's negotiated, obviously, it at least forestalls the problem and delays it. But I think fundamentally, as long as Turkey is at war with the PKK, the, the larger Tur Kurdish militia in Turkey, as long as that war is active or, or there's no peace process or no peace treaty, there's always going to be a latent possibility of conflict in, uh, in Syria. I will add one more thing. The Kurds are not stupid, and they did not bet all their future on an indefinite American military deployment in Syria. The most logical step for the Kurds would be to reach some sort of agreement with the Syrian regime, wherein maybe they get a little bit of local autonomy in return for protection from the Turks, uh, or they make a deal with the Russians for the same thing. Uh, but to have leave themselves with no friends at all, I think is not a likely situation. Let's talk a little bit about the future of Syria under Bashar al-Assad. So with ISIS slowly kind of that, that flame kind of extinguishing somewhat and uh, something that resembles you know, normalcy returning to – to Syria, you are uh, the dawn is you know uh, the sun is rising up on a new dawn in the country of of a country that has far fewer citizens <laughs> than it had um, before the war began, and you see you know Assad kind of consolidating his power. You see Assad um, 
beginning to restore churches and homes in the in the Christian quarter, and uh, you know erect crucifixes in, in the town square, and you see kind of the you know Christian uh, minorities begin to kind of flourish. You see a little bit of establishment of, of diplomatic relations between uh, other nations in Syria. So it looks as if there's this you know if you project out this this future where Assad is you know going to kind of ascend back to his his position um, of of prominence and, and leadership uh, kind of unchallenged. And yet, um, this is not a regime that has uh, a lot of kind of international support in terms of uh, human rights record. In fact, just recently, you know, the House passed uh, H.R. 31, which is this, uh, you know, uh, Caesar um, uh, uh, Syrian Civilian Protection Act, which was passed by a uh, overwhelming majority uh, in the House and has been sent to the Senate, which basically uh, leverages sanctions against um, uh, Assad and the Assad regime. And so, what is what are the what's the outlook? For the Assad regime, what is it? You know, this is uh, not as y- a young man as, as he once was, not as uh, stable a regime as it once was, not as um, uh, you know. A, there's a a great um, new demographic reality that's taking hold in the country with so many of their citizens that are now scattered across uh, the globe. Very few, probably of them, those that have become refugees are, are likely to return, are going to be able to return. Uh, so what does this new Syria look like? And what is the stability, if, if, if you could even call it that, of this new Assad regime? So this is a tricky, it's a tricky question, because uh, on the one hand, if we're talking about who won the war or who survived this uh, this test of the conflict over many years, I would say that Bashar al-Assad won it, and, uh, and here he is. So, uh, so that's better for him than would have been the ugly alternative uh, for, for his regime. However, if you're talking rather than a kind of relative sense, if we're talking in an absolute sense, uh, the the regime is in very bad shape, uh, and uh, from a military perspective, a security perspective, first of all, from which all this discussion flows, he cannot control the country or defend himself without the Russian air force and Iranian ground troops, or, or Iranian backed uh, Iranian backed uh, proxy militias. That is not a situation of hey. That means that there's no sovereignty in the country. Uh, that he loses some of his freedom of maneuver uh, and that the security of the country is in a sense compromised in a different way uh, by, uh, by the intrusion of and your dependence on these foreign, foreign parties that don't always share your interests, not to mention don't always govern or want locals to be governed in the same way. And often have competing interests between themselves, yes, like Iran and Russia. Yeah, absolutely, right. especially once the kind of impending threat to regime survival fades a bit. Then these differences started to come up. Second of all, maybe even more importantly, the the political economy of the country is shattered. I mean, these uh, the costs of rebuilding Syria are mentioned are estimated in the four hundred five hundred billion dollars. Uh, that's I mean, this is a poor country to start with. Not exactly very attractive for capital uh, or even for immigration or labor flows or anything. Half of the country is still displaced, and uh, about five hundred thousand people have been killed. There is no prospect of the sort of political agreement that would bring international capital and some degree of respectability back to the country. Now, you could even argue maybe that that's just impossible because of the particular kind of war that it was, the fact that 
the way it was fought, the way it's still being fought. There are 100,000 people in prison. Tens of thousands have been killed. Uh, so there's too much. It's kind of too radioactive, you know. He will, he will have good relations with certain communities in the country. Uh, the Alawite community, obviously, to which he belongs, uh, has stuck by him militarily and politically, but no one in the country is happy with the quality of life, with the incredible amount of corruption that emerged during the war, uh, with the kind of banditry and, uh, and thievery that skyrocketed. It's basically a place in... It's, it's, I wouldn't say that it's in a post-war situation or post-conflict situation. And I don't see the path to get there because it would require at least some, uh, either complete international transformations or some degree of political compromise inside the country. And I don't see either one of these things as likely. Uh, but having said that, I don't think it's going to be North Korea where no one's talking to the regime and the place is completely sealed off and completely isolated. Obviously not. Bashar has powerful friends. But uh, they are not going to rebuild this country for him. At the end of the day, he needs Europe most of all. It would be nice to have the United States too, but he needs Europe most of all, and he needs the Gulf Arab money. And if he doesn't have those two things, and I think the Caesar bill you mentioned is one step further away from those things, I think the place is going to be completely dysfunctional. So I don't see a new dawn. Uh, I just see someone kind of standing over rubble, some of which may be erected here and there, but uh, it's a broken country, and I don't see a way out for them. It's it's much like the if you're familiar with the historic concept of like a pyrrhic victory, right? Yes. So it's a victory that occurs at such great a cost that you've basically destroyed that which you were you know advocating and fighting for. So. That, that's absolutely true, and you know it's because at the end of the day, uh, this is a kind of uh, this is a regime that at its core, its very core, is has is based on sect and family and personal relationships. Uh, and survival. Now, if it's if it wasn't a survival war, then I think it's imaginable that Bashar would look around him and say, "This is a disaster. This is a pyrrhic victory." Uh, but uh, I think because it's a, it was perceived by him as a war for survival, then for him, I'm absolutely convinced he thinks he won and that he played it right. Uh, and the rest of that stuff you and I are talking about now, that's just life you know, in, in, in these situations. But he doesn't, uh, I don't think he feels any ambivalence about it at all. Okay, Faisal, so we've been talking about, you know, uh, this, uh, the new developments in Syria. We've been talking about the future of the Assad regime. We've been talking a little bit about the U.S., you know, role in the Middle East. Like what, uh, help us kind of um, help our listeners as, as we assess uh, America's role, as we assess um, our ability to effectively engage in, in kind of foreign policy, um, you know, we looked at kind of the future of the um, Assad regime, of what that kind of holds. Look into the, you know, your crystal ball, let's say, for, you know, U.S. politics. As, as you look ahead, we're in halfway through the Trump administration. Uh, the 2020 election is going to kind of begin in earnest. Uh, you know, opponents have already begun to kind of announce. Uh, Democratic opponents have begun to announce uh, against President Trump. What, if if you look into the future towards the 2020 election, what do you see? Do you see America uh, resolving itself to kind of bend away from this kind of America first isolationism and, and re-embrace kind of a globalist uh, vision of American leadership? Or do you see a, a kind of continuation, a reaction against, you know, a continuation 
continued. We're, we're still in Afghanistan. We still have troops dying in Afghanistan. We have troops dying in, in Syria. We have t- troops still dying in Iraq. Uh, even President Trump, with all of his bluster and all of his kind of vitriol, has been a- unable to extricate us, you know, from from these fights. And the argument whether or not he should is kind of what we've been talking about. But you know, all of these things kind of remain unchanged. Is there going to be a continued reaction that's going to push us towards this kind of isolationism and a reassessment of American priorities? Or are we going to kind of pivot back towards kind of a, a globalist engagement of uh, the world affairs? I think that's an excellent question. Uh, what It's significant to me that uh, this pivot towards a kind of re-entrenchment or inward-looking foreign policy, uh, it started with the Barack Obama administration, not with the Donald Trump administration. And Barack Obama, I believe at the time, reflected sentiments that were pretty widely held in the United States. That's probably because of the Iraq war. I mean, that's probably the simple answer. Uh, But also because, you know, the Cold War is behind us. We got comfortable. Then the war of terror happened, et cetera, et cetera. Looking forward, the easy answer is, I guess, it depends who the president is, but that's not really the complete answer. Uh, the there is a question over whether or not something has changed in uh, American foreign policy thinking, both at the popular level and at the level of the elites, wherein some of the things we used to take for granted, uh, the concept, for example, that essentially the United States, that the status quo in the Middle East is largely favorable to the United States. That's not perfect, but you know, key interests are being met. Uh, and that it is the United States' responsibility to enforce or protect or help protect that that order. Now, traditionally, we've kind of defined our interests there, and there is across the world, really, pretty expansively. I mean, there's obviously the interests of the homeland, most important, uh, but it's also international trade and soft power, you know, the appeal of U.S. values, U.S. education, U.S. outreach, a lot of other things. I believe the past 10 years has been about a much more narrow or a much more limited appetite for going out and making those things happen. Uh, I think in the Obama administration, it wasn't because those kind of liberal international values weren't held. I think they were. I just think that they did not believe that American power could help bring them about. Protect them. And I think with the, with the Trump administration, it's a bit different. Or should I say, rather, with President Trump, it's a bit different. Uh, I don't think President Trump perceives the U.S. mission as including these things at all. I think he sees it as core security interests, security literally interests, and economic interests. Uh, and that our allies are allies mostly in that sense, in that we are security partners and we can benefit economically from them and obviously they benefit from us. Are we entering this kind of sea change or shift in the way Americans and American elites see foreign policy? If there is a leader who can make a convincing case about why America should still care about that, A, and B, why America can still do it, despite our economic problems and despite the fact that we now have China to contend with, uh, then I believe that it can get traction. It can't and won't be, though, the same as before. We don't have as much luxury of power as before. We now have problems economically. We have a secure, a near-peer rival abroad in China. And 
you know, I've mentioned this before. We have very, very polarized politics at home. Uh, and foreign policy is often used as a kind of domestic political tool uh, to delegitimize the other side's initiative, etc. That is absolutely incompatible with a far-flung American foreign policy with bold goals. Well, I think you make some excellent points. I think the idea of a house divided against itself, you know, cannot stand. Uh, and one of the things that I hear when I go abroad and talk to, you know, people in other countries is they look to the United States. What is the most troubling to them is is not so much maybe the incoherence of, of the higher levels of foreign policy, but it is a cultural division that they sense that's, that's played out in our news, that's played out uh, across social media. And that cultural division is, uh, has reverberations I think throughout the world, and I think it it is uh, somehow uh, kind of undermining our our ability to effectively lead. Because as much as we would want to say, and as much as um, you know, the the president would want to meet with somebody, or an ambassador would meet with somebody, and sit across the table and say the United States is resolved to do X, Y, or Z. All it takes is a quick look at Facebook, a quick look at the news to see that there is you know massive division or massive protest. Uh, not unlike you know the situation that we'd have during the Vietnam War, or to whatever we would say to the communists that were resolved, all it would take was a look at nightly news to see the United States literally kind of tearing itself apart. Do you see, just real quick as we kind of close, what, I mean, do you see that um, any kind of end in sight to some of that uh, cultural division as it could pertain to uh, foreign policy? I mean, we, we saw kind of with the Vietnam War, it took the end of the Vietnam War and it took kind of a refocus on the new foe of, of kind of the uh, Soviet Union and um, uh, the Cold War to kind of refocus America's attention abroad. Is there a foe out there? And I said a weird way to kind of say it, but is there? That's commonly how the United States kind of marshals its itself together. Is whether the foe is the Soviet Union, whether the foe is Al Qaeda and and terrorism. Like what what is abroad that that could potentially unite the United States in um, it, culturally speaking? It's a funny thought. You know, the terrorism thing worked for actually not very long at all as a unifying as a unifying issue, probably just after 9-11 until the Iraq war. And then that consensus fell apart. And to be honest, the terrorism issue was not serious enough in practical terms to mobilize people and unite them uh, around con- over contentious states. It's not like the Soviet Union. Uh, I do refer back, when I want to make myself feel better, I think about the Vietnam era, and I think things were much, much worse than they are now. Obviously, they didn't have the internet. Thank God for them. But, uh, but, uh, but uh, still, you know, the divisions, the violence, etc. I'm personally an optimist about America. You know, in general, I uh, I kind of feel the place is so big, and the government is structured in a way that's self-limiting, in a sense that the damage at any one period that can be done also is limited, and that it passes. Uh, I think we're still dealing with a lot of the, frankly, I mean, I keep saying this, I say it to all my friends and colleagues, I think we're still dealing with a lot of the poison of the Iraq war, uh, even though it's, you know, behind us and we don't have troops, well, we do, but we don't have a substantial presence anymore. I think this kind of, this disgust with uh, with what happened uh, has generated, A, a lot of doubt in our own values about the role of American power. Uh, and in our role to do things well and accomplish them. The Pentagon seems to think that Russia and, to a much larger degree, China are your next gift as as foes. 
Uh, I probably actually agree with them in a purely geopolitical sense that these are the major problems, especially China. Uh, and, uh, and I'm actually eager to see how this kind of trickles down into the American conscience because it's not there yet. You know, China is still a place we kind of have trade problems with, but it's not really a geopolitical enemy. Uh, and, you know, obviously they hold a ton of our debt. We'll see. So let's see what happens on the other side of the planet. Okay. Well, when uh, we'll continue this conversation, and as uh, the situation develops in the Middle East and situ- situation develops here at home uh, in terms of the election, uh, we'd love to have you back. We've been speaking to Faisal Atani, the resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Faisal, thank you for being our guest uh, today. We look forward to having you back. You've been listening to the Provcast, the podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy, online at providencemag.com and available at wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.